0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabinus. We're going to talk about one true king as our theme, and I'm going to focus today really on truth. Uh, Is the message of Easter true, and does it matter? whether it's true or not. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to be reading a passage out of 1 Corinthians 15. This is a letter in the New Testament. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, you can open it. Or if you have a device, a phone or something that has a scripture on it, you can open that and we'll read together. And then it's going to kind of talk us through it. And uh, then we will uh, return to a song. So here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. This is God's holy word. to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this, his grace toward me, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. In an article in The New Yorker, author Ian Crouch uh, points out how frequently poker terms uh, have become common idioms in our everyday speech. He, he mentions that we say things like upping the ante, or we say, hey, we're stacking the deck, or I'm going to call your bluff, or uh, you know, we, we say, hey, like I'm doing this morning, I'm putting all my cards on the table. He says, but the one term taken from poker that is dramatized And way overused in our culture is the term going all in. Going all in. We use it all the time. He says, whereas all in once referred to a scenario in which someone either wins a hand or loses everything in a flash, now going all in means that a person is simply generally enthusiastic. It's true. We take the term and we say, man, I'm all in on this new diet or I hope you'll join me in being all in for my Baylor Bears tomorrow night in the championship game. But we say we're all in when it's not really that big of a deal, right? He says, now, the guy who is way up on a rock face, free climbing, without a rope, that guy's all in. The rest of us are doing something else. But then he says this, The all-in moment in poker is a thrilling win-or-lose-everything crisis of dramatic clarity. You've wagered all you've got, giving your fate over to the cards, and you can't go back out again. So what does a poker term have to do with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Easter Sunday for Christians is a reminder that we as Christians really have gone all in on the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're saying that we believe that he was raised, and more than that, we're saying that we believe it changes everything. We're saying that we believe that it changes our very purpose for life that it changes our goals in life, that it changes how we handle our money, it changes how we do our relationships, it changes how we work, it changes how we play, it changes everything about us, and most importantly of all, it changes what we are banking our eternal hope on. It changes everything. In 1 Corinthians, the chapter that we are reading, Paul is writing to a church and he's reminding them, folks, this is what we preached to you. This is what you believed. You folks, you're all in on the resurrection. And why does he do this? Because some of them are saying, you know what, we're not sure there is a re- resurrection. Matter of fact, we don't even believe there's a resurrection. And so he writes this chapter to tell them the importance of the reasonableness, the historical nature of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in the chapter, we didn't read this far, but later in the chapter, he says something shocking. He says that if Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is futile. That means it's a waste, it's a sham. And then he says this, if Christ is not raised from the dead, you of all people are the most pitiable people on the earth. Because you are living your life and trusting your eternity on something that is a lie. Now Paul says here the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are of first importance. Verse 3, I delivered to you as a first importance. This is what matters most. Why? Because Christianity rests all its weight on the claim that Christ was God, that He died for our sins, And that three days later, later, he was resurrected to new life from the grave. And Paul calls that the gospel. In verse 1, he said, brothers, I remind you of the gospel I preach to you. And then he defines the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to others. Now, we can say more about the gospel, but that is the core message of the gospel. And here's the key thing. I want you to get about Christianity. Here's the key thing, that it claims to be based on an historical event, and that is what separates the Christian faith from all other religions. So whether you believe in the resurrection or not, please know this much, that Christianity is unique among faiths, among other philosophies, among other worldviews, because it is entirely based on the reported news of an event, the resurrection of Jesus. And so it is different. In a new book called The Problem of Jesus, written by Mark Clark, he writes the following. He says, Buddhism and Hinduism, for example, are otherworldly. They are about states of consciousness and enlightenment, metaphysical, abstract, spiritual teachings. Judaism and Islam center around the study and practice of law, the Torah, the Mishnah, and the Quran, respectively. These religions are about living according to a particular interpretation of authoritative texts and teachings. And while Christianity has aspects of the otherworldly and the practice of law, ultimately it comes down to an event, a verifiable moment in history, Christianity could not survive if it was only about Jesus' teachings, as good as those are. Even his death, as heroic as that was, could not sustain the faith by itself. It's a good example of sacrifice, but it becomes a sad and tragic story if you take out the resurrection. Christianity is vulnerable. Because if a person were to find the bones of Jesus, we would have proof that Christianity is wrong. More than not quite accurate, it would be fully wrong. A colossal error. And I'm not the only one to say this. The Apostle Paul came to the same conclusion. He said that if the resurrection didn't happen, Christians are the most pitiful people on the earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. So the point is this. That the gospel, what Paul is reminding them of, the gospel, it's not an idea. It's not a principle. It's not sort of a philosophy of life, a lifestyle, or a list of rules that you must follow. It is a report. The gospel, it is a report of something that actually happened in history. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then the resurrection validates his teachings and his claims, in particular, his claim to be God. If he rose, it changes everything. If he rose and it validates that he, in fact, is who he said he is, it changes everything and every one of us should rethink our lives in light of that. Here's the one thing we can't do. We can't respond casually to a dead man rising and walking around if that man claimed to be God. And if that man claimed not only to be God, but to be bringing salvation, to be bringing restoration to a broken and hurting world. C.S. Lewis famously said the following, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of Infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That's true. If you believe that Jesus rose and is alive and you are living your life following him and trusting him as your king, that's consistent. If you believe that Jesus did not rise and you are following a different pathway for your life, you deny the resurrection and you believe in some other philosophy, some other religion, uh, or some of their worldview, that you live according to, that's consistent. What's not consistent is to say, I believe that Jesus came up out of the grave, and, and that has a minor impact on my life. I, I sometimes take in a religious service here or there. That's absolutely inconsistent. If Jesus rose, and he is who he says he is, Our entire lives should be reoriented around that reality, that God has come to work in Christ, that he has defeated the power of death, and that he will make all things new. And so in this passage, Paul is saying, look, I'm going to make two central claims. One is that the resurrection or believing in the resurrection is reasonable because it's historical, he would say. And secondly, believing in the resurrection is personal. That is, it has a personal impact on the believer's life. So let's walk through what Paul says is of first importance. Remember, it's a news report, good news. This is what's most important, he says. Number one, he says, verse three, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, historians uh, almost universally agree that Jesus Christ lived that Jesus, the man of Nazareth, lived. You can find some extreme people that may not believe that. But, but plenty of atheistic, credible Ivy League scholars would say that Jesus existed. And they would say that he died by crucifixion. Those aren't really radical claims of great debate uh, among most historians. But what Paul says here is that he died for a purpose. That he died, it says, for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he died for our sins. When he says according to the scriptures, he's probably talking about passages like Isaiah 53, which foretell the coming of one who will die as a sacrifice for God's people, that he dies in our place, that his death pays the penalty that we should pay for our own sins, even though he is innocent. So in other words, he dies on our behalf. We're all sinners, the Bible teaches, and we need atonement for our sins. We need a payment for forgiveness for our sins. Now, we may not think of ourselves as sinners. You may think of yourself as a moral person, and you may, in fact, be um, a good moral person who does good things. That's certainly possible. But when the Bible talks about being a moral person, it talks about something different. It speaks about living a life of perfect righteousness according to God's standard, and none of us do that. And more than that, it, it calls a moral life a life that, that does good and lives up to God's perfect standard for the purpose of bringing glory to God. In other words, it's not just doing good things. It's doing good things purely motivated by the love of God and love for our neighbor without any self-interest involved. I mean, I don't know about you, but I do plenty of good things with some self-interest involved, hoping for a little payback, a little acknowledgement. So the Bible says that's not moral. Morality is doing perfect deeds for the love of God and the love of our neighbor. And by that standard, all of us would have to admit that we're sinners because nobody does that. And the Bible says because we're sinners, we're in need of forgiveness. And the Bible says because we're in need of forgiveness, God sends Jesus to die, what does he say, for our sins, so that believing in him we may be forgiven. Next he says that he was buried. He was buried. That's an important detail. There have been some throughout the years that have claimed that Jesus didn't really die, uh, that uh, you know, he was rendered unconscious, and that maybe he was placed in a tomb, but that he came to him, his senses, you know, awoke and sort of came out. But that, that, that out of the tomb. But that's not really a reasonable, credible um, sort of uh, idea. And the reason I say that is this, if the Romans who crucified him, if the Romans were good at anything, it was killing people. They, they executed many people by crucifixion. And Jesus in particular was viewed as a threat, maybe a minor threat, but a threat to the Roman government because his followers were saying he was a king and he was claiming to be a king. So he was a threat to the Caesar. And so you better believe that someone who's claiming to be a king will be executed. There's no pulse left when that crucifixion is done and they buried him and uh, the bible tells us that roman soldiers guarded him so that his guarded the tomb so his body wouldn't be stolen he was buried paul says to demonstrate that he was dead and not only was he buried but he was buried in a known place he was buried in the tomb of a man named joseph of arimathea this wasn't a back you know kind of behind the curtain kind of a deal well we don't really know where they put him no, this is identified. He's an identifiable person. Not for us now, but if you lived then, Joseph of Arimathea, it was his tomb. It's a place you could go to, you could see, and that's where he is actually buried. So his burial—it's—it's—it's a, it's a, it's a credible report, I believe, of what it says happened to him after he died. Next, he says he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul addresses the resurrection here that and gives the evidence of his appearance because, as I said, some of the Corinthians are doubting. Verse 12, for instance, we didn't read that far. But it says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So some of them are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. So Paul says, okay, let me remind you what happened. He really died, he really was buried. And you know what? He appeared to some people. Starting with, he says, he lists a bunch, but he says, Peter, Cephas is another name for Peter. He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Now, this is interesting. He brings up his appearance to Peter because Peter saw another evidence of the resurrection before he saw Jesus resurrected. Peter's first sight of evidence of the resurrection was he saw an empty tomb. So, if we were reading in the Gospels today, we would see a big emphasis on the empty tomb. Now, it's, it's a fact that some scholars who do not believe in the resurrection do not deny the empty tomb. They just deny what happened, that he was resurrected. But many scholars do accept that he, was die- he did die, that he was buried somewhere, and that there was, in fact, an empty tomb. I mean, think about it. The, the explosive growth of Christianity after the death of Jesus, the unprecedented there was nothing in history like this that Jews would worship a human, a God, the God man, Jesus Christ, and it spread with rapid fire. If anybody could have, if anybody could have brought a body, if anybody could have shown and revealed, a, produced a body, well, it would have stopped. The growth would have instantly stopped. When you read the empty tomb accounts in the Gospels, Uh, they do read authentic. They they don't read like a story that someone is just making up. Uh, For instance, here's one example. We could give a lot, but here's one. The first witnesses to the empty tomb, the first people that find the empty tomb and then report it are women. That's not a big deal for us. That's a huge deal 2,000 years ago because sadly, women weren't viewed as credible witnesses. They weren't viewed as reliable, and in fact, a woman could not give a testimony in a court of law. When when critical scholars look at an account, and they use criteria for authenticity, there's a number of them that they use that we could look at, but this is just one. It's called the criterion of embarrassment. And it means this, that if someone is writing a fictionalized story with an agenda, they typically do not include details that could call their report into question. Somebody writing something fictional with an agenda typically doesn't tell a story that would could immediately be called false because of some of the details, and yet that's what the empty tomb story reveals, and that's exactly the pushback they received in the early days, that the witness was not credible because women were the first one to give their witness. Another compelling detail, I think, about the empty tomb accounts is that the first witnesses, they are not all in on the resurrection. Now, a fabricated story probably wouldn't read like that, but the reality is that they are not all in Because the original witnesses to the empty tomb assumed that dead bodies stay dead, and they assumed that the body was removed. It demonstrates, first of all, that they weren't gullible, nor that they were expecting a resurrection. Again, Mark Clark, in his book called The Problem of Jesus, writes the following. The early church wasn't composed of a bunch of naive, myth-believing, ancient simpletons who didn't know any better. When Mary heard the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead, she didn't say, Okay, great, let's start a new religion. She pushed back. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. It's funny that modern skeptics think they've come up with smart alternative explanations to the empty tomb of Jesus by saying that people came and stole the body, when we literally see that is the explanation of the first woman who walked into the empty tomb. She thought, someone must have stolen the body. That's what my logic tells me. His own followers were surprised, and before seeing him in a resurrected state, they assumed the only explanation is that the body was taken away out of the tomb. The story really doesn't read like propaganda. It doesn't read like a conspiracy of those who have in mind a resurrection and are going to tell a story to prove a resurrection. They they ring authentic, I think, the way the stories are told to the open mind. It next says that he appeared. The Scripture affirms that his body wasn't stolen because, in fact, people saw him. And in verses 5 through 8, he lists the people that saw him, and there's other people. He doesn't mention the women, for instance, but there's other people that saw him. But here's some. Verse 5, he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. Verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. I don't know if sisters were included, how big a group that was, but at least 500 men were there in one, one event, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James and he appeared to all the apostles. So he is giving this emphasis of his appearance. In these verses, he uses the word appear four times. They're doubting the resurrection, and so he wants them to know, he wants to remind them about the appearances of Jesus. In a new book called Hope in Times of Fear, written by Tim Keller, uh, is written uh, after he received his diagnosis and written uh, while undergoing treatment of pancreatic cancer. Uh, and so he's written a book on hope, and he's written a book on the resurrection. The books about the resurrection just came out. I haven't read it all, but what I've read is, is excellent. And he makes the point in this section. Paul says, here's the news. Here's the gospel. Christ, and I've always thought of it as Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose, Christ appeared. But then he goes on and lists all these statements about who he appeared to. And Keller points out this, that as as Paul says, this is the gospel, 75% of the words in the original Greek are dedicated to listing eyewitnesses. 75% of his statement about the gospel is saying people saw him. He says 500 of them are still living. Now, we can't interview them, but you can. He was saying to the church at Corinth. These are people that you could talk to that saw him. And please know this. These are 500 people that have no category for a bodily resurrection. In other words, just like his first followers weren't naive uh, simpletons, neither were the people of that day uh, predisposed to believe in resurrection. They were not predisposed to believe in resurrection. Uh, they weren't just some superstitious people that were easily deceived. So basically, there's two groups of people here. There's the Greeks and there's the Jews. Here's what the Greeks believed. They were influenced by Plato, who 500 years before this had written the following, that this is the nature of humanity. Everybody is a spirit, and we are encased in a body. And when you die, so the body's bad, the spirit's good. When you die, your spirit is released from prison, and you live in a spirit sort of realm. Many Christians actually believe Plato more than the New Testament, actually, in how they view the future, uh, because that's not what the Bible teaches. But that's what Plato taught. Body's bad, spirit's good. When you die, the spirit's released. So they had no category for resurrection. As a matter of fact, there's a story where one of the Greek gods is going to raise a little boy from death, and Zeus punishes him for it. Because Nobody would want to come back and live in the body. The body's bad, the spirit's good. So, not only is the resurrection unbelievable to a Greek, it's not even desirable. And the Jews who say they saw him, neither were they predisposed to believe in resurrection. Many Jews did not believe in resurrection, the Sadducees, for instance. The Jews who did believe in resurrection believe this at the end of time, everybody's resurrected. But no Jew, there's no writing saying that what they expect is that some guy in the middle of history is going to be raised and have a spiritual body while the world is still decaying and dying and be walking about like it's the end of the world, that he's going to be living this life. No one believed that. So it's not just 500 people. We have no record of anybody that's, that, uh, that, is, that has a, a teaching or a philosophy or a category of that this is what is going to happen. So with the empty tomb, no dead body, hundreds of resurrection, these are resurrection agnostics who claim that they have seen Jesus resurrected. It's, it's reasonable to assume something extraordinary happened, especially with the spread of the early church. But maybe you think, well, yeah, maybe it's reasonable, but can you prove the resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt? In, uh, in his new book that I just mentioned, Keller, Tim Keller writes the following. I found this very helpful. If you're a skeptic or a doubter, um, think about this for a minute. Maybe it'll just doubt your doubts for a minute. Suspend, suspend your doubts for a minute and l- listen to what he said because what he says is how do we really know anything? This is what he says, does all this prove beyond a shadow of rational doubt that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred? No event in past history can be empirically proven the way something can be tested in a laboratory. We can't know that William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066 in exactly the same way we know that a compound liquefies at such and such a temperature. However, once we make that distinction, we can still say we know things in history happened, if there is a great deal of historical evidence that they did. On the one hand, the use of human reason alone cannot force us to believe in the resurrection. There is room for intellectual doubt of almost any historical event. But on the other hand, we can see that belief in the resurrection of Christ is not a blind leap of faith. It has an enormous footprint, as it were, in history. And then he goes on to make the point that many things we believe, actually most things that we believe, aren't verifiable in a laboratory. He says, indeed, almost nothing important that we base our lives on can be demonstrably proven. Our moral values, our beliefs about human nature, our beliefs about whether the material universe was its own cause or was created by God, all of these fundamental assumptions about reality come through a combination of reasoning, evidence, and faith. Can we know, for example, that all human beings have equal dignity and human rights? Although there's much evidence for that belief, human rights cannot be scientifically proven so that any skeptic would be forced to accept them. Think about that. That's one of the most foundational beliefs I trust everyone in the room holds. The value and dignity of all people, that's not verifiable in a lab. Even if you come to believe on rational grounds that the resurrection of Jesus probably happened, you still must exercise faith to become a Christian. Not a blind faith, but a faith. And that's where Paul closes by saying, not only. Is the resurrection reasonable and historic given what he talks about here and what the New Testament and the Gospels talks about, the empty tomb? He also says that it's, it's personal, that the resurrection changed my life. Look at verse 9 and 10. For I am the least of all apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his, own, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Here's what Paul's saying. Guys, you know me in Corinth. And you know my story. I used to arrest and support the killing of Christians because they said Jesus was resurrected. Now, I'm a passionate advocate of the resurrection and I'm being persecuted, and he doesn't know it at this time, but he will die for teaching the resurrection. One of the things that's always been most compelling to me about the resurrection and its validity is the experience of the early disciples. Here's the reality. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, the early disciples that said he was and said they saw him, they know he's not resurrected. And they have created a hoax, and they are spreading a hoax. And and now they are being persecuted for that hoax. Why would they go out and proclaim and defend at all cost, to the point of losing their lives, what they knew wasn't in fact True. There was no money for them in it. There was no fame in it. There was no prestige or power. They were following one who was viewed a condemned heretic in Judaism. They suffered, you look at Paul's lifetime, he's taking a beating, he's getting stoned, he's getting whipped. There was nothing good about what they were doing from a comfort point of view. There was nothing to be gained. If they knew it was false, why would they endure all that and why would they die? Sure, people die for lies, but lies that they think that are true. No person given a choice will die for something they just made up. Listen to what happened to Jesus' followers. As best we can reconstruct from history, this is what happened to the people who said they believe they saw him alive. And gave their life for him. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Nathaniel was flayed to death with a whip in Armenia. John died in exile on the island of Patmos. James the Greater was beheaded in Jerusalem. Luke was hanged in Greece. Mark was dragged to death behind a horse in Alexandria, Egypt. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Philip was crucified in Phrygia. was stabbed to death with a spear in India, and many others who said they saw him endured the same fate. And so I ask you, what's more believable, what's more credible, that deceivers would give up their own lives for something they knew was fake, or that perhaps they really did see him, and perhaps their lives really were changed, and perhaps the reality was so reoriented that they counted it an honor to die? proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus as their only hope. Paul says, the resurrected Jesus changed me, and he gave his life for it. The early disciples that saw him to a person, as best we know, died excruciating deaths for their faith in Jesus. Many people were changed, and the church grew like crazy. People were, uh, were killed in the Colosseum for sport in Rome. It spread from people who saw and told others and they were so convinced that they would give their lives for the reality of the resurrection. To the doubting Corinthians, Paul says, belief in the resurrection changed my life. You know what I was like and you know what I'm like now. And he would hold that change wholly and exclusively to the message of the resurrection of Jesus. So how about you, has Jesus changed your life? I'm not asking, are you okay with the message? You're, you're sort of there. It's fine. It's good for some people. Yeah, I believe he was resurrected. And for really, you know, sort of serious people, that's good. But for me, it's just more like a fact that I sort of hold on to. Have you been changed by Jesus? You know, I love what Mark Clark said other, other, uh, earlier we read that Christianity really is vulnerable. And he said as an atheist when he investigated, that's what appealed to him that they put all their cards on the table and said, we're banking everything on this. And so here's the thing, if Jesus didn't rise, you would be a fool to follow him. Paul said that. You're foolish to believe and to follow Jesus if he didn't rise. On the other hand, if he did rise, you are an eternal fool for not following him. It all comes down to the news, the report, the event. He offers himself to us today he gave his life for our sins. Why? To forgive us. And you can turn to him and believe and receive his forgiveness today. You can be embraced by Christ. Have a new life. Have your conscience cleared, conscience cleared, your sins forgiven. Have your life upended with a new purpose and a new, new meaning, a new joy, a new, new reason for living, and a, and a sure hope for the future. He offers that. You just need to turn and believe in him. Acknowledge his death for your sins and trust that he rose to to demonstrate his sacrifice counts for your sins and that he has brought new life and will one day make all things new in his kingdom. He calls us to turn to him, turn from our self-directed lives and acknowledge him as our one true king as we enter his kingdom, what he is doing on earth today. If we don't receive him, and I just I feel compelled to be honest about what the Bible says. If we don't receive him, the Bible says that we can receive him as our Savior and receive our forgiveness, or we can deny and reject him and be judged by him in eternity. One time Paul was preaching to really smart people, smarter than most of us in the room. Uh, He was was preaching in Athens to philosophy-type people. And uh, this is what he said to them in Acts 17. He said, The times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to turn, to turn to Jesus, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's what he's saying this is the guarantee Paul gave the philosophers. Here's the guarantee. Not only does it prove he's God, but it proves that he will judge the world. His resurrection is the assurance God gave that he will one day judge every person. Now, here's what happened when Paul said that. Some of the philosophers heard him and burst out laughing. They mocked him, it says. You know why they mocked him? It says when he mentioned the resurrection, they started mocking. They were cool with his teaching. They were cool with his death, probably. But when he mentioned the resurrection, they began to laugh. Paul, you're nuts. You're crazy. And they rejected him. But the, the passage says another group of people heard him and came for follow-up teaching and believed in the resurrection and joined Paul. Really, there was two responses in his audience. Some didn't believe and went about their business. Some believed and joined him their lives were changed. I offer that to you. How about you? How does the resurrection land on you? How do you respond to the message of the resurrection? Jesus calls you to turn and receive glorious new life from him, and he offers. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.